When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, there's only one story in town, obviously, today, ladies and gentlemen, and it's the total and utter destruction of the woke agenda that came so close to shutting down debate in this country thanks to the Queen of Woke, Meghan Markle. This morning, Piers Morgan is basking in the glow of victory after the broadcast regulator Ofcom ruled that he was right to share his opinions about the Duchess of Sussex following her bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey on CBS in America. Last night, Piers hailed the win uh, as a thumping endorsement of freedom of speech, and I can only say uh, that I totally agree with him. And I think the fact that this is such a big story uh, will reverberate throughout the land and will reverberate uh, and put the heebie-jeebies up the wokists. And that's what I plan to do today as well. After receiving 58,000 complaints about the show on Good Morning Britain, Ofcom declared that to rebuke peers over what he said would be an unwarranted and chilling restriction on freedom of expression. We talked a little bit about it yesterday uh, right here on this show because the story broke as we were on the air. Uh, but we will be doing more on it today because I'll tell you what, in the sun today, they've got 17 untruths that were part of that Meghan Markle interview. And the fact, and you may not think this is as big a deal as it is, but I can tell you it really is. The fact that Ofcom, the regulator of the broadcast media in this country, has actually backed a presenter with an opinion is a massive deal. And I want you all to realise that, please. Uh, this morning we'll be celebrating the end of Wokery with Sun columnist Clemmy Moody, who spoke to Piers last night, and author and lawyer Helen Dale as well. Up first, though, we're joined by Ben Habib, former Brexit Party MEP, with his take on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, their talks with the British government, and just where all the refugees are going to be housed in this country. Some councils are already rejecting the idea of bringing more people into their areas that have to be schooled, that have to have their kids look after and that have to be given jobs and homes. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be asking why Nicola Sturgeon is bringing in vaccine passports to Scotland and what it will mean for the rest of Britain and why there is already talk of a third booster jab, a COVID vaccine for the vulnerable in the autumn. I think we know how that goes, don't we? I'll be knocking on the table again at this rate. Coming for your 12-year-olds with a third boost. We'll hear why there's yet more evidence that teachers are no more likely than anyone else to suffer uh, badly from COVID as the restrictions get put on the schools as they open. But as ever, of course, we need to hear from all of you. What are you being told? What are you hearing? And what's it like wherever you are, whether it's a school, whether it's a hospital, uh, whether it's the civil service, whether it's the border force, whatever you're dealing with, we need to know your stories. 0344 499 1000. Also, of course, the Thursday Club returns as well. We'll be trying some fine wines 
Helen and Nicklin's away, so it's going to be a bit of a surprise this afternoon. We shall see how that all goes. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station in the land. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Stories this morning on the front pages include UK cabinet ministers at war in Afghan blame game. After weeks of recriminations between ministers, Ben Wallace says he argued back in July that the game is up and the UK needed to accelerate plans to rescue local allies. Much of this comes from Dominic Raab's appearance before the select committee yesterday in which he says bad intelligence was to blame for the chaotic withdrawal and the UK was indeed caught out. He says that ministers were told Kabul could resist Taliban until the end of 2021. But they didn't get that right, did they? Let's talk to Ben Habib, CEO of the First Property Group, former Brexit Party MEP. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Um, I didn't see all of Dominic Raab's appearance yesterday on the uh, uh, at the committee, but it does seem as though there was a great deal of confusion at the heart of government, at the heart of uh, the Ministry of Defence, and indeed at the heart of the Foreign Office, not least because perhaps many of them were away on holiday. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, they've been asleep at the wheel, not just over the last few weeks, but actually since February 2020. Mm. Remember, the deal that was brokered for Western forces to leave Afghanistan was done over a year and a half ago. They've had a year and a half to get ready for it. And if the government, our government, that is, was against the deal that President Trump struck with the Taliban, We should have been jumping up and down and shouting that from the rooftops a long, long time ago. The fact is, we were asleep on the job. We didn't prepare ourselves for an elegant exit, if such a thing is possible. And frankly, to claim we thought Kabul wouldn't fall until the end of this year is missing the point completely. The fact is, Kabul was known to be falling. We knew it was going to go. We knew Afghanistan was going to be in the grip of the Taliban. And we had to get ahead of that problem, not react to it when it became a fact. I think that's absolutely right, because as uh, Joe Biden calls it a uh, an incredible success or a remarkable success, which is laughable, really. um, You do wonder why, uh, if it was going to be all the way until the end of the year before Kabul fell, surely that would have meant a civil war would have been going on then for six or seven months. Uh, Absolutely. And is that something that we should champion? Do we really want civil strife and um, uh, all-out war in Afghanistan. We've got to remember, the reason the Taliban exist is because after the Russians vacated Afghanistan, we lost interest in the region. And the Mujahideen, who we had weaponized, started fighting amongst themselves, started subjugating the people. And actually, the Taliban emerged from the Mujahideen to hold the more militant parts of the Mujahideen to account. To, uh, to actually bring some law and order to Afghanistan. So as much as we find their militant Islam repugnant, they are our creation. They're a result of first our arming the Mujahideen and then turning our back on Afghanistan. And actually, Mike, for all the optics of this horrible humanitarian crisis that is now unfolding, the real story in Afghanistan is not what's happening now. It's the way the country is going to be left over the next few years as a kind of war-torn, absolutely bankrupt. If we continue to pursue the economic policies with Afghanistan that we're we're pursuing, we're going to leave them bankrupt, and we're going to force them into uh, China's arms, number one, from a geopolitical strategic perspective. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to force them to uh, grow their poppies and rely on their poppy trade, sending their heroin to the United Kingdom, to the West, 
from which is which really is their only source of foreign currency and proper revenue. You know, you've got to remember that 40% of Afghanistan's GDP, which is already a very small figure, it's only $20 billion a year, their GDP. 40% of that is international aid. We're cutting that off. Mm. They have international reserves of about 10 billion. We've frozen that. So we've, we've left the country. We've abandoned the people of Afghanistan. We've frozen their economic uh, assets. And we've left them with nothing to look forward to other than disharmony, civil strife, and farming poppies. That's and, also, what it and, also, and, and also very possibly death. One of the things that uh, has been talked about endlessly is the um, uh, the lithium deposits and the, the mineral wealth that Afghanistan yeah. has. I mean, why on earth was, was, this, was this country, was our government not working with the Afghans to try and sort of build up some kind of infrastructure to mine all of that stuff and to have it uh, as, a, as a source of revenue for them? Because it seems to me that not only did Britain not do that, America didn't do it either. And so it will be down now to the Chinese to come in and provide all of that infrastructure, which they're very good at. Um, but yeah. they will also then cream off the profits, won't they? Well, well, absolutely right, Mike. And again, it comes back to us seeing Afghanistan through purely a geopolitical lens and not an economic one. What we've sought to do is to export our ideology, our democracy, down the barrel of a gun. And, and, and we've tried that for 20 years. And whilst we might, may have made some inroads into the education of girls and so on, we haven't won the country over. We haven't laid the foundations for a peaceful, prosperous Afghanistan. And that could only have happened if, as you say, we had alighted on the potential of lithium and other aspects of Afghanistan that could give rise to a sustainable, economic, economically viable country. It's not an economically viable country, and we're strangling it at the moment. China will move in. China will not export its ideology to Afghanistan. China will allow the Afghanis a means through which they can trade their way to betterment. And the Afghanis, no matter how um, uh, abusive the Chinese are to the Muslim Uyghurs, the Afghanis will love the Chinese for it. And they will turn away from the West. And with it, and we've discussed this on your program before, so will Pakistan turn mm. away from the West. And well, that's really... Well, I mean, that's a place you know very well, Ben. I mean, what is the situation with Imran Khan and the leadership of Pakistan? Because that's a very strategic um, place for, for Britain right now. You know, there's always been a kind of a competition, hasn't there, going on between the US, Britain and the Russians to control um, Pakistan and India. It now appears that China will be part of that kind of um, axis as well. Um, what do you hear when you go back to Pakistan from, from, from people in the government there? Yeah, well, China is already the largest single foreign investor in Pakistan. And there's no, that's not by accident. That's because they have walked into the vacuum created by the West variously relying on Pakistan and admonishing it for its war in Afghanistan. Pakistan itself has been forced away from the West because of our foreign policy in that region. And you've got to remember that Pakistan is a democracy. And in democracy, what politicians do is appeal naturally to the electorate. And the easiest way to appeal to the electorate is through the prism of Islam. Mm. If, a, if Imran Khan wants local support, he has to, he has to flatter the, the, the more sort of vocal Muslim elements in his country. And now what he's got is a Taliban 
that can rightly point to their victory over the USA as evidence that God supports their cause. Mm. And that's going to go right through the madrasas of Pakistan. That that cry of, you know, we clearly had God on our side, we beat the USA, is going to resonate right through the dispossessed of Pakistan. And Imran will have no Imran Khan will have no option but to pander to that to maintain his own popularity in, in the democracy that is Pakistan. So we, we've created a real problem of it with its own momentum. And we again, we need to get ahead of it. And the way to get ahead of it is not by threatening and bullying and insisting that people do as we say. It's actually through trade. It's by turning heads in the in subcontinent, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, away from China and towards the West. They need to know that their future, their prosperity relies on trade with the West. If they think it relies on trade with China, that region will be lost to us. And it, as, uh, as Bill Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. Um, and it's a very well-made point, I think, Ben, because not enough people are saying that. It's all very well for us to go, well, we'll negotiate with the Taliban about how to get some people out. But what you want to do in order to make places safe surely in the world is to give them more security to give them more prosperity to give them the ability to make money to have a reasonable life to not live in fear uh, because i was reading at the weekend that the economy despite the fact that the taliban now have 85 billion dollars worth of equipment from the americans they haven't got any money there's no money in no, the economy at all no it's become a it's become a cashless society people can't get money out of the atms their foreign currency as i mentioned has been frozen the foreign currency reserves which are largely held in the US, have been frozen. And so they've been strangled economically. Um, the aid will drop away. That's a 40% reduction in GDP. Yeah. If, you know, we thought the 10% reduction as a result of COVID was bad. Can you imagine if 40% of your GDP disappears overnight? Mm. It's an absolute disaster. And what will that do to the people? They'll think, well, okay, the US has turned its back on us. They've frozen our assets. Yeah. They've, they've allowed the Taliban to take over. We better make peace with the Taliban. We better look to the Taliban for our salvation. None of this helps our political aims. None of this helps the exportation of our ideology and democracy. The only thing that's going to help us in that sphere is if we can convince the people of Afghanistan that we have friendly intentions towards them. And the only way to do that is economically, mm. through trade. It's not through aid, by the way. No. Even though 40% of their GDP is through aid, it's not a sustainable proposition. No, we I, have I to agree. trade. I agree. Aid is pointless uh, in the long term. It just doesn't really work. It's for emergencies it's only is what I think. But stay with us, and, Ben. And Ghani. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say President Ghani ran off with most of it when he when, when he left of Afghanistan. Yeah, well, I mean, he's certainly not living in a cashless society. He's got helicopters full of it, but that's another story. Um, stay with us, though, because I want to talk to you about what happens now back here, because a lot of councils are now saying they don't wish to uh, have to house any Afghan refugees because they simply can't do it on the basis that they don't have the resources. They don't have the places in schools. They don't have the houses. Um, also, Dan Jarvis, the mayor of South Yorkshire, has been talking about how he does not want to see all of the Afghan refugees being placed in the north of England simply because it's cheaper to put them there. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
We're talking to Ben Habib. Dominic Raab currently uh, addressing a joint press conference in Doha in Qatar, uh, where he's meeting with, of course, members of the Taliban. He's basically making out that uh, we still have a commitment to the people who are left uh, back in Afghanistan, uh, who may or may not have the right to come to Britain. Uh, he's trying to get the safe passage guaranteed. Um, however, we're talking to Ben Habib here, CEO of First Property Group, former Brexit Party MEP. Ben, uh, stories this morning suggesting that just one in three councils are saying that they're willing to take refugees from Afghanistan because they literally don't have the resources to do so. So it's all very well for Dominic Raab to be concentrating on, uh, you know, how many more people can come here. But where are they going to go? Well, it's an absurdity. The answer to Afghanistan is not in taking refugees out of it into the United Kingdom. I think Boris Johnson promised 20,000 originally. That's 0.05% of the population of Afghanistan. That may help him feel better about himself, but that is not addressing the problem. If we want to get rid of this massive influx of refugees, we want that to stop what we've experienced over the last six years. We've got to stop messing around in the Middle East. We've got to stop aiding and abetting war zones, participating in creating war zones. Afghanistan is perhaps the best example. And if we think we've got it bad in this country, Pakistan actually at the moment has 4 million Afghan refugees in it. Think about what that does for the strains of the public finances, as well as the social fabric of the Pakistani society. Mm. And those 4 million are not happy, obviously, with staying in Pakistan. If they can get to the UK, if they can get to France, Germany, that's still the UK, because everyone seems to want to cross from France to the UK as soon as they get into France. Um, you know, they're going to be here. They're going to be knocking at our doorstep. And we've just exacerbated that problem. So, Well, let's not forget, Ben, that some of the people you know, who are already coming here on a daily basis um, and arriving on our beaches have actually come from Afghanistan, having left there months ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this notion that Afghanistan was under control until we left a couple of months ago, or started leaving a couple of months ago, is rubbish. Uh, Afghanistan was in the grip of many respects, was always in the grip of the Taliban. You know, they had a a bit of a setback in 2001, but by 2003, 2004, they were mounting uh, a reasonably popular, by the way, fight back against Western forces, which has continued all the way until we capitulated in the Doha Agreement. What Dominic Raab should be doing, and this is at a risk of repeating myself, Mike, so Mm. forgive me, but what Dominic Raab should do is get a short connecting flight from Doha to Islamabad, and he needs to sit down with Imran Khan and find a method by which we can bring peace to Afghanistan into that region, and with it, save Pakistan as well. And if you can bring peace and then prosperity to that region, we won't need to worry about the refugees. No, exactly right, because I'm looking at um, another headline this morning in one of the papers where it says, Rob jetted off to Crete two weeks after the memo from the Foreign Office warned about Afghanistan collapsing. So he has not out of the woods yet, really, in terms of his own political career, even though clearly Boris Johnson is not that keen on getting rid of him. Um, but it has been an absolutely shambolic kind of a situation. And it doesn't fill me with any great confidence that the bringing of all these refugees into the UK is going to be any less shambolic. No. And, you know, our, uh, we've got a real problem with our own border with France, haven't we? And with freedom of movement in Europe, we can fully expect that the boat people, for want of a better name for them, or dinghy people coming across from France is going to multiply. That is going to happen. 
And that's a direct result, again, of our foreign policy. We need to think these things through beyond our noses, which is clearly the extent to which our government has addressed the Afghan withdrawal. Mm. And it's not just about the humanitarian crisis. It's about settling the country. That's what we have to think about. We've got to stop looking at this problem right up here. We've got to look at what's coming down the road mm. because that's what's going to really come back to bite us. It's the, it's the acceleration of the opium trade. It's the, it's the um, uh, taking on of terrorists and creation of new terrorist groups within Afghanistan because they'll be economically destitute in penury. What do people do when they're poor, starving, they lose hope? They become aggressive. Yeah. That's what we're creating. We're creating more aggression yes. in that country. We need to neuter that before it settles down and becomes embedded. And we're, make, we're, we're not even talking about that. That's not even on the agenda. Mm. And the other thing that really gets me, Mike, is that you know, we're in this problem partly because we bit off more than we can chew. We're in this problem because we backed the United States of America not having any real vote over how the U.S. behaves. And the U.S. decided it was going to pull out and the U.K. didn't have the wherewithal to stay the course. That's why we're here. Mm. And what does Boris Johnson do after the U.S. pullout? He calls a G7 meeting. He goes straight back to the one entity that's already let us down. The G7's got no answers for this. The U.S. is not going to help us uh, establish a sensible policy for Pakistan or Afghanistan. What we need to do, actually, is take a leaf out of the book of our forefathers. And they understood, actually, the way to settle the subcontinent, the way to control the subcontinent, not that I'm seeking control of the subcontinent, but the way that they did it was through enlightened commerce. Mm. They did it through trade. It wasn't down the barrel of a gun. It wasn't through threats. It was by sitting down and doing deals. So Dominic Raab needs to cancel all holidays for the next six months, and he needs to spend an awful lot of time in Islamabad that's where he needs to be. Yes. Well, he is the foreign secretary. It might be good if he spent some time in foreign parts. It's not a bad uh, It's not a bad tip. And I think you're absolutely right about the commerce. I think that's exactly the way we should be going. Ben, very sensible conversation as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib, CEO of the First Property Group, former Brexit Party MEP. Dominic Raab has now said that they will not, as a British government, be recognising the Taliban, but there is a need for engagement. Now, Qatar, obviously, is a place where the Taliban have had proper political representation for many years. It was in Doha, in Qatar, where the negotiations took place between the Trump administration and the Taliban. However, uh, what is the point right now when people in this country are saying, we're not sure we can even take any more Afghan refugees, what is the point of Dominic Raab trying to negotiate for more Afghan refugees to come out of Afghanistan to Britain where there isn't room for them? That's the question. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We need to hear from you on this, please, because this is the home of common sense and this is where we can pass common sense on to Dominic Raab, amongst others, and many other people in the government who don't seem to have a clue that there are many, many reasons why an awful lot of um, communities in this country can't take any more refugees. It just simply isn't possible. It's as simple as that. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, we're going to be talking uh, to the Liberal Democrats in Scotland because it turns out, of course, that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has done what some people feared she would do, uh, and that was to introduce vaccine passports, basically, 
for the entire nation of Scotland. Alex Cole Hamilton's leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, not too happy about this. Alex, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. So um, hundreds of thousands of Scottish people who haven't been fully vaccinated won't be able to go to nightclubs, concerts and some sporting fixtures. I mean, um, we know that Nicola Sturgeon has turned into a bit of a sort of dictator type figure, but this is even for her, this is going a bit far, isn't it? Well, this is deeply troubling. For the first time in our country's history, Scots will have to part with their private medical information to complete strangers to access venues and services. These are COVID ID cards, pure and simple. And actually, I'm not persuaded or nobody's offered an argument as to why this will help drive down infections rate, infection rates. And remember, Scotland's got some pretty nasty infection rates right now. If your uh, vaccines don't stop you catching COVID, they don't stop you passing it on. And if you're in a venue filled with people who have a vaccine passport, that might lead to a false sense of security mm. and people might start start taking a bit more uh, relaxation with the rules. They'll, they'll not think about it so much. They think that they've got that protection, whereas actually they're just as at risk as they were before. This is the wrong move. And it's actually a very dangerous step down to state control rather than infection control. Well, that's right. And also, I mean, we were seeing, I think, um, uh, in the beginning part of this week, articles appearing in newspapers here saying that actually the introduction or the possible introduction of vaccine passports was dissuading more people from actually bothering to get the vaccine. Um, so it's also, in, certainly in England, having the opposite effect. Well, that's right. And let, let's remember, vaccines are important. They are our route out of the pandemic. So we need to do all we can to encourage people to take them up. But encouragement is what we need, not compulsion. And this is the first time ever I, that I can imagine in, in Scottish history where the populace has been compelled to embark on a form of medical treatment and then present evidence of their private medical records to somebody who's not a clinician. Let's remember, they'll be, they're not showing a vaccine passport to a doctor at the door of a nightclub. It'll be to a bouncer or to a door manager. Um, and, and I just think that that is not a step we should be taking. It doesn't prove that there's any impact on infection control, but it does lead to a worrying uh, culture where we pass our private medical information to, to strangers in order to access the freedoms of our society. Yes. And it, it creates a sort of two tier society one. But it also, uh, as you say, it puts the onus on checking this kind of thing on people who have already got plenty of problems to deal with trying to get, you know, uh, people in and out of nightclubs who might or might not be intoxicated, who might be under the influence of, of various narcotics. You know, you've got people at football matches, perhaps, who are trying to control hooligan elements of the crowd. You know, I mean, they've already got enough on their plate and it's going to ruin, presumably, their uh, ability uh, to do what it was that they were doing. And they're going to have to hire more people. And let's remember, Mike, that the nighttime economy have suffered almost more than any other industry as a result of this pandemic. They were the last to come back online. And we've heard hospitality leaders um, on the radio and on television last night declaring this as a real threat mm. to the recovery and survival of their industries. They don't know what they're going to need to do in terms of checking these ID cards. They're not going to, they don't know what they're going to, uh, it's going to be required of them in terms of policing. And I'm very worried about the IT behind all this, because in Scotland, things were creaking already. In terms of our test and protect uh, service, which is the same as track and trace, where contact traces in Scotland are taking up to a week to make first contact with those who've been in close proximity to a positive COVID case. I'm not confident that we'll, we have the IT and the backfill and the people servicing this system to make it work effectively. Nobody said, what does it mean for people who've been vaccinated in different jurisdictions? They've not told us what it means for the booster programme when that comes online and how frequently you'll have to renew this passport or this COVID ID card. So in many ways, this is rushed, it's illiberal and it should be stopped. And 
In um, uh, the figures I'm looking at here, it says that uh, surge, uh, there's been a surge in case levels in Scotland by 80% in the past week, five times higher now uh, than they were four weeks ago. Um, what's, what's being said to be the reason for that? Well, in part, uh, I've referred to that already, and that is that our track and trace, our test and protect services is, is just not fit for, uh, for what it's designed for. And, and why? Because it shouldn't take a week for you to be contacted to say that last Sunday or last Monday you were uh, having dinner with somebody who then tested positive for coronavirus. Right. I mean, that you will have gone on to infect many other people as a result of that. We're just behind the curve and we have been behind the curve since the very start of the pandemic on Test and Protect. So that we need to invest in that. We need to get more people in the field uh, following up on contacts of those people who test positive. Uh, but of course, uh, we, we've relaxed restrictions. Our schools have gone back. In a way, the government has accepted that coronavirus in, is here to stay. We have to live around it. Thankfully, fewer people are getting dangerously unwell and fewer still are dying, but they, they still are. But And also people are getting long COVID as well. So it, the threat is still very present. But I don't think that the false sense of security of a programme of COVID ID cards is actually going to do anything to help infection rates. And rather, I think it potentially feeds something that the SNP are quite partial to, which is government control and meddling in individual private lives. Yes, well, sadly, that seems to be the case in in very many parts of the United Kingdom, doesn't it? Because the problem for me, and I say this to every politician I ever speak to, is that surely in the end, yes, uh, we've been through the worst of this pandemic, it would seem. Yes, we can still find people if we want to find them who will tell us that it could get bad again. But in the end, you know, all of these pandemic viruses tend to, to whittle away and become something that we have to live with. Now, some politicians are saying we have to live with them, but that yet they're not changing their attitude on how they deal with them. I think there's a real tension for politicians at the moment. We've just had two years of everyone being told for the first time in living memory to stay indoors, to stop contact with their nearest and dearest, right. to stay at home, not go to work. Um, and, and now it's very difficult, I think, in the public mindset to accept that you know, some of that threat has gone away. It hasn't gone away entirely. People will still get long COVID, which is a devastating, debilitating condition. Yeah, but very few people, people will Alex, will get that. And the point is, is that all yeah. of these measures that were put into place, if you figure out that the, the numbers of people who died in this country as a result of this COVID outbreak uh, were so high as to be some of the highest in Europe, then they didn't work, did they? All these measures, all this locking people away didn't work. And I think that public tolerance for a lot of these measures is, is ebbing away. And I think I, I've been deluged with emails today from people who support the Liberal Democrat stance in opposition to these COVID passports mm. because it's a bridge too far. And lots of people recognise now that the SNP are kind of making it up as they're going along on some of these restrictions. So, for example, in a wedding in Scotland, you have to have a mask on during the ceremony, but you can take that off for the wine reception or the, the Cayley dancing Afterwards, right. I mean, either either you're contagious or you're not, right. um, and and that isn't backed up by any scientific basis. It's just think of a number of politics because I'm, I'm afraid Nicola Sturgeon is still trying to give the impression of being in control of this when actually it's fair to say that we've lost control of COVID in Scotland. Yes. But the trouble is, and, and I mean, you, you have to ask the question whether they've ever had control of COVID in Scotland uh, or, or indeed anywhere else. But, you know, a difficult problem for you guys is that she has a majority. Uh, she has now an alliance with the Green Party. Um, and so there's not much in, in the Scottish Parliament that anyone can do, is there? 
Well, that's one of the most disappointing things about this, Mike. Until now, the Greens have stood side by side with the Scottish Liberal Democrats, um, offering criticism and opposition to the idea that we would have to have COVID ID cards introduced in Scotland. For the price of ministerial salaries, the, the Green Party will now take the government whip. And we saw yesterday uh, a Green backbencher offering a very softball question about impact on vulnerable people of these passports. But it's clear they're completely rolling over and the, the Nicola Sturgeon has the Greens on a very tight leash. If it has to be the Scottish Liberal Democrats as the sole voice of opposition to this illiberal policy, then so be it. But we will make that case stridently. And I know that we bring a large section of the public with us. Well, let's hope so, uh, because John Swinney only in July said that uh, passports were, in fact, the wrong way to handle uh, the lower uptake of vaccinations in the young. And Patrick Harvey, uh, who is the Greens co-leader, basically said that uh, uh, they raise human rights issues. So, uh, he obviously had some kind of a road to Damascus conversion, hasn't he? Well, quite. And I, I think only Patrick Harvey understands the reason uh, why he's been won over. I think it's got something to do with his ministerial car and salary. But nevertheless, um, it is, I think, symptomatic of an SNP that just wants to look like it's doing something. It recognises that we have the worst COVID rates in Scotland. So yet again, it can't. It, I think it's tested the water and realised that the public won't accept another lockdown in Scotland. So it's thinking, well, what do we do differently? And the one tool in the box, which they think doesn't cause too much upset, um, is the introduction of COVID ID cards. But, but the fact that Nicola Sturgeon could not tell me when these would be brought to an end or whether they would be subject to extension to other venues in our society, I think suggests that, you know, this could be the, the very thin end of a dark wedge in Scottish life where we have to present private medical information to complete strangers to access the freedoms in our society. Mm. I know it really is quite shocking. And when is, when is this all supposed to be happening, Alex? Well, we did, it's not been timetabled, but it will, there will be a vote in Parliament next week. The Liberal Democrats under my leadership will submit a, uh, an amendment to that motion, effectively um, making the case to, as to why this is unnecessary. Um, we recognise the arithmetic is against us, but if uh, we lose that vote and we lose that debate, then we'll move to a position of um, try, driving for their abolition, because these cannot remain in place in Scottish public life. They, I don't believe they drive down infection control and actually are more about state control. Yes. Yeah, well, good luck, Alex, because what we don't want to see is a, a copycat policy starting south of the border as well. Alex Cole-Hamilton, MSP, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, there speaking about the plan by uh, Nicola Sturgeon to introduce vaccine passports to various things like sporting events, like nightclubs, uh, like other sort of theatrical scenarios. The trouble is, of course, it's all very unclear, isn't it? As he says, so much of what this policy is, is driven by a kind of mad sense that you're following some kind of scientific advice. But there isn't any scientific advice that says that you can go to a wedding, wear a mask while the, the wedding service is going on and then take it off when you have a dance. Surely uh, you either keep it on or you don't. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to anybody who's got an ounce of common sense about them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, uh, we're going to talk to Liz Cole, who is, of course, co-founder of Us For Them, because it turns out that as the schools are reopening, and many of them are open already, some of them are doing a kind of staggered opening, uh, certainly that's the case in uh, in my family, teachers are no more likely than other working-age adults to be hospitalised with COVID or suffer a severe infection, apparently. So why on earth are the teaching unions making out that we're all going to be in terrible danger because children are going back to school. It's madness, I tell you. Liz, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. I mean, when are they going to stop with this nonsense? I mean, I've got a a 14-page letter uh, that I've been sent on email from my uh, son's school all about the reopening, what's going to be happening, how many tests are going to be run, why the tests are going to be run till the end of September. You know, I mean, everything down to the most ridiculous detail of how they want to reevaluate the way everything is. Um, as if not only has nothing changed since last term, but it's actually somehow got worse. It is extraordinary. And I think what's quite interesting about this is that the consensus on schools and the um, situation in schools hasn't really shifted very much the scientific consensus um, in the last 12 months. We knew quite early on that schools simply reflected community transmission um, rather than were driving it. We knew that children themselves were happily at very little risk of COVID themselves. Mm. And we also knew that um, the teaching profession wasn't at greater risk than than other professions. Um, So we knew all of this um, probably 12 months ago or more. Um, and now, again, we have, you know, the adult population has been protected by the successful vaccination programme and we have 94% um, of adults or over that have antibodies. So I'm not quite sure why we're unable to move on from this position, because actually what we do know is that you know, a league table, nobody wants to be at the top of, but the loss of, of learning, um, we were one of the highest in terms of lost days from school closures. That's not a position we should want to be in. And we owe it to our children now to put them first, you know, get them back into school, keep the schools open and give them a normal school experience and provide them with that certainty that they need to actually get on with their learning, get on with their social interactions um, and recover from this really difficult period in their lives. Absolutely right, because it horrifies me to think of what the plans are that are being made, which are uh, at the moment, as far as I'm aware, to set up kind of vaccination rooms in schools for children to go in and get vaccinated. I mean, it's a horrific idea. I think the you know, medicalisation of a school setting is 
you know, to me, I, I, I don't think that's a desirable situation. Mm. Um, we've talked about the uh, vaccination um, issue before. And again, I think it all comes back to what is proportionate and what is actually for the benefit of children themselves. Um, and I think it's, you know, I'm really happy to see the kids going back to school. Um, but I think, you know, we have to really have a bit of a mindset shift and think what is going to be best for children um, and put their recovery um, and, and their schooling, their education and their lives at the forefront, um, rather than always seeing children as a problem to be solved. And I think that's where we seem to have come to now, is that children are a problem, they need to be, you know, they need to be managed, they need to be tested, um, as, as if they're somehow super spreaders driving mm. um, the pandemic, when we've known from very early on that that really wasn't the case. So, um, you know, I think we need to, we need to really, you know, get a grip to be honest and actually as adults stand up as we've said many many times and remember that as adults our duty is to protect children children's duty is not to protect mm. adults we have to protect them we can't be um you know putting all of these measures in place which are at the end of the day are to protect adults but adults are them themselves have been protected so what is the benefit um of of these measures in in schools it's not for the benefit of children no um it all, it all become we have to address now why are we doing this why can't we just let children go back to normal now exactly right because my issue with it liz is you know look, i'm not against anybody if they wish to have a vaccination that's fine uh, if they're told by people in government that they should have it because it protects everybody and they're adults and they're able to make that decision for themselves and that's equally fine um although it now appears that the two vaccinations aren't apparently going to be enough they're going to start handing out third boosters but, you know, to start targeting children when you don't even know um, what the long term effects possibly could be on uh, young people. So when they get into their mid 20s and they've had a vaccination when they were the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, you have no idea what that's going to be like because we simply haven't had time to study it. I think it's wrong. I think, you know, again, it's about what is what would be the purpose of that? Um, would it to be to benefit children? Um, it, it doesn't seem to me that the, the evidence shows that. As we said previously, um, the JCVI had, had stated that they didn't see that the benefits outweighed the risks in that cohort in, in children. Right. Um, and I have seen nothing, you know, nothing further that, that, that makes me see that situation um, differently. So, you know, we can't um, we can't ask children um, to protect the rest of society um and i think the, the what i see very much is that young people are you know very mindful of the pandemic much as they're criticized young people have sacrificed an enormous amount from the very youngest children up to the university age young people they're very mindful very considerate i think of of the rest of society but i think they've sacrificed enough now that you know we now is the time um, that we we stop asking so much of our young people and start giving them something back. Um, yeah, how about how about their actual education? That would be nice, wouldn't it? It would, and I think you know, giving them a certainty um, that that schools won't be closed again. That's what that's what I think that they need is to be able to recommit 
to their education in the knowledge that they are being prioritised, that we will, you know, come hell or high water, their you know, schools will remain open, they will have their time in school, they won't be sent home at the drop of a hat, um, and they will be allowed to have a normal experience um, as far as possible um, for, for the coming academic year. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? And as far as I'm aware, Liz, there's still not been any real evidence of any child passing COVID to a teacher. Um, I mean, I know in my, my own son's school, there have been cases where, where people have been taken out of school because they've tested positive, but there hasn't been anything uh, anywhere close to anyone going to hospital or anyone even being ill, as far as we know, apart from, you know, having sort of mild symptoms. I think, you know, the point here is that we know that you know, the schools have have measures in place. Um, the, the notion that they don't have have measures in place is, is is not the case. There's a whole you know whole set of guidance from the Department for Education. We know that schools have never been the driver for community transmission. They've always only reflected that. Mm. Um, yes, you know, ch children do do transmit. Um, the virus, but they are, have a more limited role. And the adult population, nine, over 94% of adults now have antibodies. So I, I really fail to understand, um, you know, why we can't now think, okay, well, we, we do have that protection and let's simply move on and allow children the normality that they so desperately need because the damage of school closures, of disruption, of mass isolations has been extraordinary. Um, the impact on mental health, the rise in eating disorders, you know, and not least the impact on that educational attainment gap is something we're going to be facing for years to come. So without actually... Um, bringing things back to normal there's no prospect for children to actually begin a recovery we have to normalize things for them first yes i think that's absolutely right so what finally liz should parents do um and i've spoken to some parents who have had this problem uh if they get or their child gets a letter in the post or a text message in the uh, on their phone saying please come for your vaccine um if they don't feel comfortable about that what can they do um, I think it's having you know discussions as as, as a family. Um, I haven't personally seen seen such a letter themselves, but I think myself. But I think um, well, my seventeen-year-olds you know, had one. Sorry, my seventeen-year-olds had one. Yes, yes. So I, I think it's you know having a, a you know having discussions as as a family, um, and you know I don't think there's there's really um, any. It's not right for certainly for for children to be put in this situation. Um, and I think if it was an offer, as I said before, I would feel much more comfortable. Mm. But there's no there's no offer involved in the sort of coercive messaging that we've been seeing towards towards young people. No. Um, so I think it's about informed consent. It's about understanding the risks and the benefits, um, and not um, giving way to, um, to to that peer pressure. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Liz, thank you very much indeed. Liz Colferner for uh, the Us For Them campaign, which, of course, is campaigning on trying to get normality back into schools. And you don't get normality back into schools by telling children they have to be tested every five minutes uh, or indeed telling them to go into this room over here where we're going to give you a COVID vaccination when you didn't ask for it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
on Talk Radio. Now, as I said, the Queen of Woke won't silence us anymore, is what Piers Morgan says on the front page this morning. He, even he must not have known, even he must have thought it was a bit of a coincidence to find that at the uh, very evening's event that he was attending last night with his wife, uh, there was Prince Harry making a speech. At the same time, families around the world are being overwhelmed by mass-scale misinformation across news media and social media, where those who peddle in lies and fear are creating vaccine hesitancy, which in turn is dividing communities and eroding trust. Prince Harry there speaking about the vaccine rollout, uh, awarding a prize. It must have been a very odd experience for Piers Morgan to be sitting in the crowd there watching Prince Harry in a tuxedo in California um, wearing and saying, oh, I don't normally do this at three o'clock in the afternoon. Clammy Moody is here, uh, the woman who's all over the paper this morning. Great piece this, isn't it? I mean, very well done to get Piers to give you an exclusive as well, because I tried to get that. And he promised that he wouldn't talk to anybody. But if he did, he would talk to me. But there you are. Good old Pierce. Well, I actually bumped into his wife yesterday, so I think he felt a bit under pressure. Yes, absolutely right. <laughs> so, I mean, it is a great day, though, isn't it? I mean, I've been bigging this up massively because I think it's more than just a an off-com ruling. It's it's awfully imp- more much more important than that, isn't it? Yeah, I think as Pierce said himself, it is a landmark ruling and it is sort of one over the, the woke brigade and it is, you know, a victory, a marker for free speech and yeah. being able to say what you think without worrying you're going to get cancelled or lose your job yes because in the end he did get cancelled he did lose his job i mean he's still obviously got other jobs and mm. so he's not going to get any red cross parcels anytime soon but <laughs> um gmb's never really recovered has it no it hasn't and commercially they're they've really got to think of something and pull it out of the bag because right. they're sinking and they they need an answer and losing peers was not not the dream commercially no. for them and as far as the, the the future for them is concerned i mean they didn't appear to look as if they were very happy with that ruling yesterday. They looked as though they were being a little bit sort of mealy-mouthed about what their statement said. Yeah, it was a very carefully worded statement, mm. wasn't it? It was very much like, you know, well done to Susanna for, for supporting peers and questioning and, and, and throwing back to peers, otherwise we would have been done. Yeah. So, you know, we were balanced in our reporting. Yes, because yeah. there was a few funny things that happened yesterday, and you'll know more about this stuff than I do, but Chris Ship, when mm-hmm. he put out his tweet, looked as if he was on Piers' side, almost, almost kind of goading ITV, his bosses, into uh, rehiring him. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting, and, and the fact that poor Susanna has been dragged into the middle. You know, her her bosses are ITV, but she's also friends of Piers Morgan, yeah. and she's sort of being torn both ways, I right. think. So she had to be quite diplomatic in her response to Chris's um, tweet. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's as a broadcaster, where do they go now? Do they go? Oh, you know, do they get a replacement like for like, or do they try and toe the line and go? What, you know, what do they do? Yeah, well, he and he kind of also goaded them rather well, didn't he, by saying, "Can I get my job back now?" <laughs> Which I don't think he wants. To be uh, he fair. has absolutely no intention whatsoever of going back. To GMB no. setting his alarm for 3.45, does he? Well, he doesn't... I mean, I saw him briefly at the cricket the other week and mm-hmm. uh, he didn't look like a man who's itching to get back to an early start. No, I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> and I think he wouldn't have been at GQ having quite as good time as he was by all accounts. No. Had he been up this morning. No, exactly. Were you there? No, unfortunately, I was yeah. uh, NFI. Because I'd like to have seen his um, uh, his face when he saw Prince Harry suddenly appearing. I had actually texted him earlier saying, just to warn you, you're going to be confronted with Prince Harry live on screen. Right. Uh, which I'm sure was a joyous moment for him. Um, but actually, in, in Harry's, in, to Harry's credit, I think what he was saying was quite powerful and quite 
brave and needed to be yeah. said. So I don't think Pierce could have a go at him. Well, no, and and I mean we haven't really heard much from the from the Meghan and Harry camp on on this whole thing, have we? No, there's a radio silence. So mm. I, I imagine they're it's not. It's very thrilled. unusual. They must be <laughs> circling the the, 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 the the tents and the wagons with all of the uh, PRs that they've got. Cause they've got about thirty of them. Frothing at the mouth behind the scenes, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, I would imagine so because I mean Scobie kind of poked his head up above the parapet and Piers gave him a slap. Yeah, what did Piers call him? It was something really funny. Lick Lick, that's it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he basically said, "Oh, but of course, you know, uh, you must be very careful about upsetting people's mental health, mm. and you can't just make these accusations." And Piers quite rightly pointed out, "Well, they've been making accusations about the royal family for literally the past year." And a ninety-five-year-old woman who's grieving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they're still promising that. Oh, don't worry, we'll wait until she's passed on before we write the real killer book. <laughs> well, they, they've denied that, though, haven't they? I think. Have they? Yeah, they're saying he'll bring out one, but you know, it's not true. But I mean, who knows? I mean, I can't nah. imagine he's going to keep quiet one book. It seems very surprising. So, do we expect to see any kind of movement on the ITV front today, tomorrow, the next day? Because they're sort of in limbo, aren't they? Mm. And I, I think Carolyn McCall's it's going to be a tricky forty-eight hours, isn't it? The 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 uh, chairman, chairwoman. Yeah. Um, you know, the ITV bosses are sort of scratching their heads what they're going to do. I think, mm. you know, they're having crisis talks, I'm being told. Um, About her uh, sort of suitability yeah, for the role, perhaps? Yeah, I'm sure she won't lose her job, but otherwise you're sort of cancelling someone. You know, it, it, where does it end, really? You can't cancel someone again. Right. Well, this is um, the, the great thing, because but... yesterday there was all this kind of uh, speculation that Alex Berriford would lose his job now. Mm. But I imagine Piers wouldn't want that. And, no, and, of course not. And, and, and you, as you say, you don't want to just replace one cancel culture incident with another one precisely yeah give her another chance give Piers a chance somewhere else yeah and, and it's just all move on really and what do you think about where he might end up then because there's <laughs> not that many places he could go no I probably won't I mean get... I've been telling people he might end up here he might do I mean I can't imagine he's going to end up at the BBC I can't imagine he's going to be working daytime ITV again no. so that only leaves a few options obviously yes. I'm sure I'm sure in America they're keen to get him back there yes who knows who knows well I mean yeah I mean because also this whole kind of you know because you know what he's like he's not going to give up is he I mean he's going to he's, he loves he's not going to retire quietly he loves a he? gloat as well I mean, <laughs> yeah. and this is the greatest I mean he was putting I mean the, my favourite tweet of his yesterday was from the Washington Post the paper that broke Watergate is now <laughs> reporting on my story yeah, I can't. I just can't imagine. I think he's what fifty six. He's not going to be retiring anytime soon. No, no, absolutely not. And as far as the the kind of the, the the way that television is now, because there was definitely a fear last year, wasn't there, that basically this is the end of any kind of controversial TV. Mm. You know, there was the whole Jeremy Kyle story. Um, there was what happened with Good Morning Britain. You know, there was Love Island controversy. Love Island survives. A lot of people have been critical mm -hmm. of that. You know, where does it? I mean, will this give television producers and and writers more kind of a chance to be brave do you think yeah a bit more free license to have some fun with tv again and get back to sort of the fun that we had you know once upon a time with, mm. before everyone was second guessing themselves and overthinking and right. you know thinking what if what if you know perhaps we might have a little bit of the sort of loosening of the the sort of cord around yes everyone. because i always call it it's a bit it's, it's what happened for me was this whole idea that actually um you know social media has kind of become real life Mm. And everybody started acting as if they're on Twitter. Yeah. In in yeah. actual in their actual jobs. Yeah. You kind of go, Which no, would be an awful world to live would, in, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just be yeah. dreadful? You yeah. just wouldn't be able to do anything, say anything. Just you have know. to wear blinkers and not speak. Yeah. I like in the spread that you've got today on, on four and five, Piers demanding Meghan and Harry put up or shut up over the claims of the uh, the so called mm. racism. Because that's still very much a thing, isn't it? They, yeah. I mean, they, they've never really pinned that down. And I think the last I'm told, anyway, I think Omid Scobie's new chapter, mm. which, of course, they didn't tell him anything about, yeah, uh, is, is suggesting that they thought about outing whoever it was, but have now decided not to. Yeah, I mean, you are, you either name this person and stop the speculation, which is, you know, potentially doing more damage, mm. um, or 
yeah, or or you just stop talking about it and let yeah. it go. Well, because I mean, you would think they might want to do that, wouldn't you? Well, sort of move on. They've done so much, you know, so much other sort of damaging, said so many other damaging things. You'd right. think that this would just be another another one to throw at the royal family, but yeah. they seem to have stopped or drawn the line here, which I don't understand really. No, really, because also you've got 17 dodgy claims down the mm. side of the uh, page five here, and these are all the things that she said, which have turned out to be either not provable or just simply wrong. Yeah, so why not add an 18th and just name the person? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they can't really, because, I mean, it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? If you're, I suppose if you are, because somebody was saying yesterday, it may not even be a member of the royal family. Yeah, Jeremy Clarkson, yeah, he, uh, you know, who knows if... If it's a direct member of the royal family, if it's an outsider, if it's yeah. 12th and 9th of the throne, 39th yeah. and 9th, they're just not saying, and that's fueling this sort of speculation around it all, which yeah. is making the situation so much more damaging. Right. So what's the future for this story, then? Are you doing more on it tomorrow? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what we can do as a day two. But, yeah, I think the speculation will be where's Piers going to go now, mm. what's going to happen to Karen and McCall, um, and in terms of, you know, where, where is TV going to sit now? Yeah. Is, is this... The other point? question I was asked, funnily enough, on Twitter just before you got in here was what happens to Sharon Osbourne? Because Sharon Osbourne yeah, was part of the collateral damage, wasn't she? Because yeah, she was, she was fired. Now, there's your day two. Yeah. <laughs> Go talk to Sharon Osbourne. Yeah, I mean, that's a great Because she could actually end up being reinstated perhaps yeah that's a great idea uh yeah that poor woman got thrown under the bus for defending her mm. friend Piers right. and saying he wasn't a racist and, and then uh, they made her apologize didn't they and then, and then they, they made, made her say oh well i didn't know that my friend was a racist and so what should i have done yeah and then she got confronted on air yeah and lost her job right and is american tv like that now as well then is it very sort of woke or is it just certain bits of it i don't really know it seems to be one extreme or the other doesn't mm. it it's either really sensitive and soft and lovely lovely yeah or they just you know, go for it. Well, I mean, you say lovely, lovely, but actually not lovely, lovely. It's mm. horrible if you're not in agreement with them all. Well, no, absolutely. But I think some of the programming is quite soft yeah. and the chat shows are yes. softer in style, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, I rather liked the Ofcom ruling when I read it uh, yesterday and I haven't read all, uh, you know, 90 mm. odd pages of whatever it is. But the idea that they've actually said if we had been uh, to rebuke Piers Morgan, it would have been chilling yeah. for freedom of speech. I've yeah. never, I mean, I can't, I could barely believe my eyes when they said no, that. No, same. It was great. Punchy. I never expected mm. it, but you know, good for them. No, absolutely right. Okay, Clemmy. Well, I mean, I'm going to try and continue to keep getting Piers Morgan on. Um, <laughs> You'll succeed. Yeah, if you talk to him today, uh, by all means, remind him. He did actually text me yesterday. He said, oh, I'll definitely come on too, so we'll see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love it. I, I mean, he, he must be absolutely having the greatest time, isn't Yeah, it? he's been pictured uh, outside his house this morning, cock-a-hoop, thumbs up, right. smiling, doesn't look uh -huh. too miserable, hungover. No. Well, he's just come back from Antigua, I think, isn't he? And he's had long COVID, hasn't he? So, so he says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're quizzing him on that another time. <laughs> Chloe Moody, thank you very much indeed. Thank it's just the sun. Great story this morning. Uh, it is, of course, the Queen of Woke can't silence us anymore, says Piers Morgan. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.